If you have a Bible open it this morning, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. And I want to uh, pause for just a moment to, first of all, thank our choir for singing beautiful Christmas carols for us. But I also wanted to thank the Flugrath family uh, for coming out and, and reading for us today at Advent. And, um, you know, I couldn't help but see the juxtaposition. We had a family, a real family, that was out ready to celebrate and read the scriptures for us. And we, you know, sang Silent Night, all is calm, all is bright. It's like, you know, we may sing that, but I think we all maybe have a little different experience with our families. And we're going to get a chance to talk about that today. And it was just a a great warm-up, I think, for where we're headed. All right, Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of Jesus. Old Testament. They know a Savior is coming, a Messiah is coming to deliver them as a nation. But they wait generation after generation after generation. And Jesus finally shows up on the scene and is the complete fulfillment, maybe not in ways they anticipated, but he's the complete fulfillment of all that they had been longing for and waiting for for all these generations. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate that, the arrival of Messiah or Savior. But we also celebrate something else that's huge. In theological terms, we celebrate what we call the incarnation. To incarnate something means to put flesh on it. So when we say that Jesus is incarnate, we mean that God literally has taken on flesh. Now we don't mean that God is, Jesus is God separate from the Father. We mean that Father, Son, Spirit are co-equal, and as it's stated theologically, God in three persons. So it, they're demonstrating that one Godness to us, but in these three persons. And that's what we are celebrating here at Christmas. We are declaring something that seems like an impossibility because we're saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As a result of the fact that he's fully man, it means that he can understand humankind. He can understand what it means to be human because he has experienced the things that we have experienced in the human condition. I think that uh, the writer of Hebrews says it very well for us about the totality of Jesus and his uh, humanness. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And so, again, Jesus is one who's there. He's understanding the pains and the joys and the sorrows of being, well, human. He understands things like hunger. He understands things like betrayal of even being killed. Jesus understands that. And so this Christmas, I want to explore with you and the weeks that we're together for Christmas, what it means for Jesus to understand aspects of our human condition. He understands because he's been one of us. And I want to explore what it means for him to be a complete savior in this way A deeper appreciation is what I'm hoping that we all feel about him because he's understanding aspects of our life because he uh, has lived it. Today we're going to pick up the famous story of Joseph and he's being visited by an angel to talk to him about Mary. Let me paint the uh, 
picture for you here as we get ready to read this passage. Uh, Mary and Joseph are betrothed to be married. And betrothal is a Jewish term for engaged, so they're scheduled to be married a number of months away. And Joseph finds out Mary is with baby. And he knows that they have not been intimate. And so he is ready to do what uh, a right thing would to do, which would be saying, I'm not, I, I can't marry you, Mary. And so again, you know, I need to break this off. And so an angel comes to visit Joseph in a dream in order to tell him about Mary and the true thing that's happened with her and that he is to proceed in taking her as his wife. As I read the passage in Matthew chapter 1, I have got a beautiful painting here. And this painting was painted in 1642. It's called The Dream of St. Joseph. And it was painted by Philippe de Champagne, I think is the way you pronounce it. I'm obviously a French painter. And this hangs today in uh, the Academy, of this, excuse me, the National Gallery in London. And so you can study that a little bit while the passage is being read. Here is the way that Matthew records this true story. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son And he called his name Jesus. That's the way Matthew records it. There is one thing that is universal at Christmas. Families are messy. It's universal. I do not care how put together a family looks. Somewhere in the background there, there is some sort of Messiness. There is some sort of drama. And truth be told, we all feel a bit of anxiety as we anticipate getting together with our family and perhaps our extended family this Christmas. There are a few butterflies that are on the inside of all of us. Family gatherings can be stressful because, well, family relationships are messy. I love a video that is uh, a classic of a family getting together, maybe for the first time of meeting, and uh, this is Fiona who brings Shrek home to meet her parents. Here it is.
<laughs> Better out than in, I always say, eh, Fiona? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, I guess not. What do you mean not on the list? Don't tell me you don't know who I am. <laughs> hey! What's happening, everybody? Thanks for waiting. You know, I had the hardest time finding this place. No, no! Bad donkey, bad, down! No, 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 Dad, Dad, it's all right, it's all right. He's with us. He helped rescue me from the dragon. Yep, that's me, the noble Steve. Hey, waiter, how about a bowl for the steam? Oh, boy. Um, Shrek. Yeah? Oh, sorry. Great soup, Mrs. Q. Mmm. <laughs> no, no, no. Darling. Oh! <laughs> so, Fiona, tell us about where you live. Well, Shrek owns his own land. <laughs> Don't you, honey? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's in an enchanted forest. Abundant in squirrels and cute little duckies and... What? <laughs> I know you ain't talking about the swamp. Donkey. An ogre from a swamp. Oh, how original. Well, I suppose that will be a fine place to raise the children. <laughs> It's a bit early to be thinking about that, isn't it? Indeed. <laughs> I just started eating. Harold! What's that supposed to mean? Dad, it's great, okay? Well, for his type, yes. My type? Uh, I gotta go to the bathroom. Dinner is served. Never mind. I can hold it. Bon appetit. Oh, Mexican food. Well, let's not just sit here with our tummies rumbling. Everybody dig in. Don't mind if I do, Lillian. So, I suppose that the grandchildren I could expect from you would be... Ogres. Yes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right, Harold? Oh, no! No, of course not. That is assuming you don't eat your own gun. Dad! Oh, no. We usually prefer the ones who've been locked away in a tower. Shrek, please. I only did that because I love her. Oh, I. Daycare or Dragon Garden Castle? You wouldn't understand. You're not her father. <sighs> it's so nice to have the family together for dinner. <gasps> Harold! Shrek! Fiona! Fiona! Mom! Harold! Donkey! Mexican food, I love it. That's one of my favorite lines. I wonder who the donkey is at your Christmas table. You know, there's always that person that you're just a little bit nervous about. Is it that uncle who's very politically outspoken? He can't wait to come and bring up the latest political thing at the table and, you know, not afraid to also talk about his favorite TV, uh, you know, news show that he has to bring into it. Maybe you've got two people that uh, are being invited that maybe have a ruptured relationship in some way. You're wondering, how's that going to go over? 
Maybe you have uh, perhaps a nephew or a niece who's gay. Or maybe they're experimenting with their gender and you're wondering how all that's going to go. Maybe you have a child who's walked away from the faith. Maybe you have somebody who is struggling with something significant like cancer or some major illness. (laughs) That's real life. That is real Christmas right there. And all of that, well, it can make us tremendously uneasy. And I join you in that. (laughs) It's amazing how starry-eyed it all can seem for Jesus at Christmas. It's amazing how Hallmark can take a stinky barn and make it look so starry-eyed. You know, it's like, oh, it's a barn. I mean, that's what Jesus is born into. I mean, it's a stinky barn. And yet somehow we get the idea that Jesus had a perfect family. They never faced any problems. And of course, that wouldn't be paying attention to the biblical record at all, but that's the tale that can be spun. Today, I want to explore the messiness of family, the messiness of your family, the messiness of my family, and the messiness of Jesus' family. Yeah, he had a messy family, and we're going to explore that today. If you have a wonky family, Jesus understands you. And using this passage from, again, Matthew about the angel coming to Joseph, we are going to explore some of the things that was true about Jesus' family and is true about yours. All right, let's pick up here. The first thing I want you to hear is all families are messy, all of them. And Jesus' family is no exception. Joseph is told by the angel that Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit, And he is to take her to be his wife, even though he has never had relationships with her. And so he is to trust God in this way. Can you imagine the pressure that is brought onto both of these young people, probably in their teens, so they're not very old, haven't experienced a lot of life yet, the pressure that's brought upon them? Because everybody is saying in the community around Joseph, ha, ha, ha. Ah, she's pregnant and you say it's not you. Come on, who do you think we are? We know how children are made. Oh, and if it's not you, then you're marrying a woman who's been an adulteress. And so double bad on you. And so Joseph is in this no-win situation as well as Mary. And this is the pressure that they are feeling as this young family. And it's, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot to be able to step into. Of course, all those criticisms would be wrong, but nevertheless, they're still out there. And Jesus gets messiness because, well, his parents face a very messy crisis as he's even being born. And he understands the messiness of your family because that's what he stepped into when he stepped into our world. I had some messiness growing up in my family. Uh, My parents divorced when I was a sophomore in high school. Not an ideal time, (laughs) as if there ever was an ideal time, but it it was hard for me. And I'll never forget kind of sorting through those early Christmases with my parents, because I was with one sometimes and with the other other times, and you know, it just felt like you were kind of being stretched. 
And you're always trying to figure out, you know, have I been fair to both my parents? And what do I talk about when we're together? And, you know, those are all the things. And I know many of you, you've either been a child and been uh, in, in a divorced family, or perhaps you have divorced. And you, all I'm telling you is something that you're living, and you know it's hard. It's hard. And so there's a messiness to all of our families. And if I pass the mic around right now and you said, this is how my family's messy, we, we, could, we could really feel the afternoon hearing about that. And I'm not sure that would be a bad thing because it's just telling us again of the commonness of the human experience and that we all have this, this human need that is in our lives. The second thing I want you to hear today is, families are sinful. Your family's sinful. My family is sinful, and we can very much hurt each other in the midst of that. Now, I want to be very, very careful here, because I'm not trying to say that Mary and Joseph are sinful at this moment. In fact, the biblical record states that they're actually, they follow God amazingly well, especially as young people, and they listen and they obey. So I'm not trying to say they're sinful in this moment, but there is this well, there's this story that kind of floats around, and it's the story that Mary is perpetually a virgin, and Mary is perpetually sinless, all right? So those are two things that would be wrong that are floated around, and that, well, you're just not looking at the biblical record. I mean, it's just so simple to look at the biblical record and certainly take care of the first one right away. Just, let me just tell you. Mary had relationships with her husband, Joseph, and they had other children. And the Bible tells us that in many places. Let me give you just two of them. Here's one of them. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so they're they're throwing barbs at Jesus and saying, you know, he says all these things about his teaching and who he is, but don't we know him? I mean, this is Mary's son, and he has brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and he even has sisters, and aren't they with us right now? And so the biblical record is quite true. Uh, Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, and there's evidence for it. There's one more passage. Let me give you the next one from the book of John. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers, and his disciples, there they stayed for a few days. So this is just talking about the brothers. But again, Jesus has got this family. So we can dispel very quickly that, that Mary is perpetually a virgin. Well, sorry, no. She actually had relationships with her husband Joseph, and they had even other kids. Mary is also one that at this point has not sinned, but certainly she is not portrayed as one who is sinless. Mary is one who's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God like all of us, and she is in need of a Savior as much as all of us are. There, there's something that happened in Turkey, and I'm hoping you'll come today and the, the, later for what we're calling our Turk Take 5, and we're going to give some highlights from the Turkey trip. But one of the things that was very surprising to us is we came out of a mosque, and there was a kind of a wall, and on the wall was kind of these uh, things that were stories or, or certain uh, descriptions of, of, of theology, and it was in English, so you know who the audience was. They were you know, really aiming at individuals who were coming from around the world who'd gone to the mosque and now were coming to look at this board. The board had several pieces of information, and one of them was about Mary. And it said that Mary was uh, 
often thought by Christians to be the third person of the Trinity. So it wasn't Father, Son, and Spirit. It was Father, Son, and Mary. And I just thought, wow, I, I, I mean, that's kind of a new one for me. But I guess if you held the position somehow that Mary was sinless, well, then obviously she's, you know, in part of the Trinity. But, you know, again, that's how confusing that can all become to some individuals. And again, the scriptures are quite clear to us that that's not the case. Mary is indeed one who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God like all of us. Mary and Joseph are human. They need forgiveness like all of us. And so in Jesus' family is mom, 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 dad, and these younger brothers and sisters. And clearly, all of them also have problems like we do. Let me tell you one of the problems that Jesus faced in his family. His brothers, in his lifetime, never believed that he was Savior. Never. They did not. They doubted. The scriptures are clear on that, that James and uh, Jude were two of his brothers. They never did believe. Now, they would believe later after Jesus died, but during his lifetime, they doubted. And so, again, they are representing to us the problems, the sinfulness of all of our families. And so I'm, I'm asking you, how do you see the sinfulness of your family played out? Are you dealing with family members this Christmas who maybe have run into trouble with the law. Jesus understands. Are you dealing with a family member, perhaps this Christmas, who has struggling with an addiction? Jesus understands. Maybe you have a family member who's angry and cantankerous. Jesus understands. One who's given up on God completely. Jesus understands. Recently, there was a plane full of Hawaiian-bound passengers And suddenly, they found themselves diverting back from their beautiful Honolulu location back to Los Angeles, where they had departed from. And the whole departure was surrounding a $12 blanket. According to CNN, the 66-year-old man threatened the worker who was charging him $12 for a blanket. Due to the chilly onboard temperature, he insisted he should not have to pay for this, And then things progressively got worse. During an in-flight call with the airline representatives, the man said he'd like to take somebody to the woodshed over this. And as a result of that, the captain turned that plane around. You might imagine what the rest of the passengers on the plane felt at that moment. No! Turned that plane around in order to come back and deplane that passenger so that they could make their way off to their vacation in Hawaii. Here's my question for you. How many times do our families fight over a $12 blanket? And you know what the source of that is. I want my way. I want what I think is just, what I think is right. $12, I shouldn't be charged anything for the blanket, let alone $12. And $12 is highway robbery. And so I'm going to divert the entire plane over a $12 blanket. That can happen to your family and that can my family because of sin. It, it, sin is nothing more than just wanting, demanding your way. And that's true for all of our families. And that can hit all of our lives because we all have this problem, again, of sin. One more thing I want you to hear today. And it's the good news. Families are messy. Families are sinful. 
Finally, families are redeemable. We learn that Jesus is about redeeming people, about saving people, and he is told that he is to give certain names to his son, Jesus. I'm in verse 21. In fact, I want you to read with me verse 21, or as I read this, I want you to take it in, because Jesus is, or excuse me, Joseph is going to give Jesus a couple of names, and here, here it is again. He will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And by the way, Jesus in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And so Jesus' name itself is speaking of salvation. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally means God with us. So Jesus is going to get two names from Joseph, and the names are Jesus, God saves, and Emmanuel, he is literally the God who is with us. Do you know that he has come to save, he's come to redeem, he's come to bring people back who have this broken relationship with God, and he is this bridge that's constantly bringing people back onto the right side of the equation again, and it's motivated by his love, it's motivated by his forgiveness, and do you know that this actually happens in Jesus' family. Again, not in his own lifetime, but Judas and James, Jude is the other way to say that name, Jude, uh, they both, believe it or not, overcome their doubt. Now, again, it's after Jesus has, has died and resurrected, but they are guys that overcome their doubt, and they both have a letter that is in the New Testament, Jude and James, and James is the leader of the church in, in Israel or Jerusalem. And so again, they have very important uh, positions. Both of them, by church uh, history or tradition, are martyred. So they pay the great cost of actually affirming their faith in Jesus, their brother. And so again, Jesus is in a family that has all these problems, but there are people that are redeemed within his family. They're brought back into relationship with God. And no matter how far off you think your family and your family members might be, they're not beyond the reach of a Savior. I, I get the idea sometimes even in my own life that we give up on family, certain family members. We're like, ah, oh, you know, they're too far gone. <laughs> that, are you kidding? Them ever come to know Christ? I mean, that would be almost impossible. And, and so we just kind of give up and we, you know, we, we start thinking that they're beyond the reach of our Lord. As uh, my wife loves to tell people that she disciples, well, that's just stinking thinking. And anyway, we got to correct stinking thinking because that's not the truth. Jesus redeems people, and sometimes he redeems the people that are farthest away from him. I want to introduce somebody to you today. Perhaps you, some of you have read about her. She's just a favorite story of mine for somebody that's very recent with us who's come to know the Lord out of a very uh, a situation that we might say is rather extreme. But the woman I have up here is Rosaria Butterfield, and she's written several books. And I want to read you a quote today that's from her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. At age 36, Rosaria Butterfield was recently a tenured professor at the Center for Women's Studies at Syracuse University. Rosaria and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church where Rosaria was the coordinator of what was called the Welcoming Committee. It was the gay and lesbian advocacy group for that church. 
Up to this point in her life, Rosaria had nothing but negative feelings about all Christians. She said, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despise Christians. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. And no matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity, and they commanded my wrath. But her negative image of Christians would radically change when she met a local pastor named Ken and his wife, Floyd. They were older, by the way. Eventually, that friendship led her to a a conversion to Christ. But here's how Rosaria described her first encounter with these authentic Christians. She says, I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember awkwardly greeting my host at the door and pulling out of my bag two gifts, a bottle of good red wine and a box of strong tea. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. My lesbian identity and culture and its values mattered a lot to me, and I came to my culture and its values through experience, but also through a lot of research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he was ever alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care much about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Karl Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional and wise, and if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at that meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and learn and dialogue. We did not debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey with me of Christian compassion. During our meal, they didn't share the gospel with me. After our meal, they didn't invite me to church because... And she she says, because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, at least as long as I thought I knew it, when evening ended, Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch. And I knew that it was truly safe to accept that open hand. Since the beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure. And this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of that journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, studying the scriptures and my own heart. Ken knew at that time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. That is the story of Rosaria Butterfield. One that most of us would have said is unlikely, if not impossible, to ever come to know Jesus. By the way, I recommend her books too. They're well written and, well, she's an English writer at heart. So, I mean, she comes with a lot of gifts for the trade, shall we say, and she's a good read. This is a good time today, right now, to choose your family member. Who is it that you say, impossible? I I could almost never imagine that family member of mine ever coming to know the Savior. And today's that day to say, Lord, forgive me for that unbelief. In fact, I want to give Betty to you.
I want to give Jack to you. I know in my own heart they seem impossible. They're just so far off. But I want to give them to you. And I want to ask, Lord, would you do something special in their lives? And would you use kindness and my love as a conduit for that? Today's message does not change one fact. Your family's still messy. That can't get cleaned up immediately. I guarantee that. But what I do hope is that as you are now stepping into the Christmas season, you have this sense that there is an understanding Savior that understands your family, has experienced your family. And so he's able to walk this road with you. My hope is that as you march into this, fam- into this holiday season, that you'll be at least a little bit more comfortable because you know of Jesus and his care. Jesus understands your family because he had a family very similar to yours. And he is working always in ways that we can never imagine. Lord, I give you my family. And I'm thinking of certain family members right now, Lord, that just seem far off. And I would long for you to draw them close. I would long for you to have them in a position like Rosaria Butterfield. And they would have a miraculous epiphany of your love and your grace and your faithfulness. Lord, and I pray that for my friends too. We don't know if that's what's going to happen. It doesn't always happen that way. But Lord, we believe that you are a God of miracles. And so we just continue to give you our lives and the individuals that we love so much. And we ask you to do good with them. Thank you for this Christmas season and thank you for the Savior that you are. We love you because you're so decidedly different. You're just so decidedly good. And so we worship you and we follow you and we trust you today with the messiness of our families. We pray in Christ's name.